0: Hey, Anna. Hey, Mike. So after we had Dale from Pablo on a couple of weeks ago, I've gotten some for Billy.
1: Have you now? Gosh, what prompted you to do that?
0: Well, but he's only five, but I like the fact that you were saying that it's uh, preventative.
1: It is preventative. And the thing is, he might be only five, but this is a really good time to work preventatively for optimum health in his senior years.
0: Mm-hmm. So what were the, the benefits of, of giving it to him? Like what does collagen actually do for him?
1: Okay, well collagen is a structural protein, so it helps on so many levels, but mainly of course with joints and dogs wear and tear on their joints, but also to help with cuts and bruises because collagen is a structural protein. Also, for one more, is skin and coat. So I've noticed I take collagen and my hair has got considerably thicker. So if you're like Mr. Binks, who's got a few bald patches, actually on this collagen, they're going away.
0: Right. Well, like Binksy, I've got a lot of bald patches. I don't know if it's going to help (laughs) me. But what I like about it, it's 100% natural. And better than that, we just sprinkle on his food. I don't have to try and get a pill down throat or anything like that.
1: Well I know exactly, it's so much easier and it's it's just very pure and it's very concentrated and you sprinkle it on and it absorbs immediately into the food that we feed because we feed raw. So it's, it's, it's really great and Binks and Prue guzzle it down so it must taste delicious.
0: Right, well it's good for Prue, it's good for Binksy, it's good for Billy but it's not just for them because our listeners can get it as well, can't they Anna?
1: They really can. Go on, give them the discount code.
0: Well, if they go to pawable.co.uk, they'll get 10% off their first order. And the promo code is a dog's life tem. That's A D O G S L I F E ten.
1: And what's the website again?
0: Pawable.co.uk.
1: Fantastic. Gosh, we love pawable. Hey, Anna. Hey, Mike.
0: <sighs> it's going to be a scorcher this weekend.
1: I know. And next week, it's apparently hitting 40 degrees in London.
0: Yeah. That's crazy. That's crazy. And I'm quite worried about Billy because the heat's not good for dogs. And we've got this sort of chamois coat to put on him uh, to keep him cool, but he he hates it. and doesn't really fit well. But the other day when we were doing that episode in the park, Binksy had this really cool t-shirt on. Where can I get one?
1: Okay, so this is an Equifleece t-shirt. I've been in love with this product probably for about 15 years and it's just a t-shirt that you wet under the tap and then you wring it so it's not soaking and dripping, pop it on the dog and it cools your dog through the simple process of evaporation. The heat of the dog dries the water but then what you can do like when we were on the heath the other day you saw me do this i just tip, more water on them. Tip, yeah. yeah gently gently onto the fabric so it absorbs completely because if you tip water straight onto your dog it will just roll off mm. so again you have a lovely little moist t-shirt and what's so great is it covers where it needs to cover which is the underbelly because that's where uh. all the vital organs are and those are what get damaged first in ah, the overheating process it. yeah because this yeah. coat
0: that wraps around doesn't really go under his belly it's just does it not bag. not really no no ah, so equifleece yeah. equifleece equifleece how do you spell that
1: it's e-q-u-a-f for freddie l-e-c-e dot co.uk
0: equifleece.co.uk got it that's it okay billy gonna cool you down
1: hurrah know how much we love to do training, but you know how I really believe that everything is holistic, multifaceted, and interconnected. Well, that's why we're about to jump on Zoom and head over across the pond to speak to behaviour expert, trainer, and applied ethologist, the amazing Kim Brophy, about her new legs training scheme. I'm Anna Webb. Welcome to A Dog's Life. Kim, welcome to A Dog's Life. Oh,
2: thank you, Ian. I'm so happy to be here.
1: Well, I'm I'm really, really chuffed because I'm so interested in, in the work that you're doing. I've watched your TED Talk and watched the video to promote the new LEGS course. Shall we begin just there and how LEGS kind of epitomizes what you're trying to achieve in the modern world of dog training that's linked to your work as an applied ethologist?
2: Yeah, sure. Um, You know, so the the LEGS model is um, really something that uh, isn't new science, right? There's just this thought that maybe LEGS is something entirely new. And the irony is, is that what LEGS is really doing is it's um, bringing back and reintegrating for us uh, in a manageable way, uh, the insights and the um, research and the uh, understandings that scientists from a variety of disciplines, largely the natural scientists, sciences. Um, have been putting together for decades. And so um, the field of applied ethology specifically is concerned with animals that are under some direct human control, whether that's uh, in captivity or domestication or both. And so most applied ethologists are looking at animals in zoos and on farms and in laboratories and shelters and in places where you know it's very obvious that there are going to be these welfare concerns as we take an animal out of their natural habitat and we put them in these kind of contrived or confined conditions um, that of course have some welfare expenses associated with it. Um, I think one of the, the reasons that it's so important to me that we bring the conversation about the legs model, which um, is essentially a welfare assessment model, you know that they uh, that is applied and used not in its legs form, but um, as a general assessment form in the field of applied ethology for those other species, as we were talking about, um, as we're looking at um, how does the phenotype of the animal so um kind of the the interrelationship between their biology their genetics their environment their ecosystem their niche their habitat um, their learning and experiences and development through the course of their life as an individual with all of these internal unique conditions How does all of that um, uh, function or not, uh, as it might become dysfunctional in captivity when it's under direct human control? And bringing that conversation to light and consideration of the modern pet dogs is something entirely new that we haven't done. And it's critical in understanding what is happening for dogs and their relationships with humans in the 21st century modern pet environments. Um, but it has not yet been something that's been integrated into our conversation. And, and part of that is that we have this kind of disconnect about how things were historically up until the very recent past um, where dogs were not exclusively captive in the way that they have to be now because of populations, because of regulation, safety, laws, et cetera, to help keep communities safe um, in light of all the kinds of concerns we were talking about before we came on here um, with dog bites and whatnot so you know it's not that we're suggesting free all the puppies and they all need to express whatever natural behaviors they feel like no that's not possible and realistic but we have to start reconciling and coming to terms with the real roots of a lot of the dysfunction that we are experiencing with our pet dogs
1: Well, especially at the moment, I think really, Kim, because certainly in the UK, the dog population in the last couple of years has grown by four, four and a half million. So that's, yeah, yeah, yeah. We are seriously, I think globally, we're living with more dogs by our sides than we ever did, you know, ever. This is a moment in time. But, you know, you do raise the question, which I love, actually, is the problem you know, in your TED talk, which was called "The Problem Is Treating Your Dog Like a Pet," you know, and I get what you mean by that because I've always been—I well, since a child, I was obsessed with dogs, grew up with dogs. My father worked for the RSPCA, so you know, so I knew about a lot of animal cruelty as as a as a child, and I hated it, couldn't understand it. And you know, I've always felt that dogs are our equals, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> always our equals, and that's where you know, training is getting better on that that level. But what do you think?
2: Well, you know, it's interesting you bring that up because right now I'm just, I'm working on some copy for a project that I'm putting together. And I was just kind of outlining for the, you know, the sake of this, what's supposed to be like a three minute nutshell, right out of what could be 30 hours of conversation um, that that one of the key problems is this kind of top down relationship that we've been taught to have with dogs where we're their master. And their role is to be obedient minions of sorts and, you know, um, compliant uh, servants and the sense where they're we literally kind of think about their purpose on this earth being to serve us and to meet our emotional and literal needs Um, When, in fact, all as all other species, they are biological animals subject to the same types of natural laws and forces as any other species on Earth. Um, And there is nothing that elevates us evolutionarily above them. Um, Yes, humans have become phenomenally complicated and intelligent in ways that are as detrimental to our species as they are helpful in the long run. Um, And that makes us feel this sense of elitism. But at the end of the day, we are also animals as um, subject to those same forces and pressures and you know, evolutionary um, factors as, as much as any other species. And so we, ha- we do have this tendency with dogs to have this kind of um, power dynamic and then a reductionist approach. And I think the power dynamic's been around a long time because people have felt for you know, many years historically that we have this kind of granted dominion over other species and that we therefore have the right to exploit them as we see fit. Um, but even as we've moved a little bit away from that in the evolution in the industry, as you described with some improvements to the way that we treat dogs, um, I would argue that if if anything, the reductionist kind of perspective hasn't actually gotten better. It might even be getting worse just with social media and internet and marketing within the pet industry that paints this picture to us that it's all how you raise them. Your puppy is a blank slate. You can have any puppy be exactly the way that you want them to be in your life. And you've got a host of products and services just ready to help you get there. Um, and where's the room for the dog in? that, right? Where's the room for the actual legs of the dog? So, um, you know, what are they bringing to the table as the other half of that relationship in terms of their needs that may or may not be being met? Um, You know, what are their emotional experiences, their psychological experiences? Um, What are their perceptions that might be very different from what our perceptions of a situation are, uh, whether they be species specific or breed group specific or whatnot? There's a lot of things that we humans have actually facilitated in dogs historically that suddenly in the last few decades we have almost zero tolerance for in our society but our society changed yeah and yet our dogs haven't we keep breeding them and making keys that no longer fit those locks of our world
1: yes keys that don't fit our locks i really resonate with that statement i think you know i mean look you know I'm of indeterminate age, but you know, in in, in my <laughs> life, which isn't that old, the world's changed completely. I mean, yeah. the internet came for a start. I mean, everything was great in my mind before that. I think, I feel it's, yeah. Anyway, let's not go there. I know. <laughs> and, um In terms of in, in terms of dogs, though, I think yeah, you know, it's people's expectations of dogs at the moment, and and for me, certainly in London, dogs are being marketed as you know this wonderful. You know, wonderful companionship, yes. The gateway to the outdoors, yes. You know, Mm -hmm. stress busters, all the rest of it. Wonderful, but... 30 percent of you know people in in the UK don't actually walk their own dog Kim at the moment and yeah that's um you know all these statistics lies damn lies and statistics right but (laughs) you know there is one and apparently the long the the average walk for a dog is just 20 minutes so there's all these figures coming out and there's truth in 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 all of this I think so you know ultimately we're not we expect more from the dog than we're giving them. And you're right with the pet industry. I mean, it's worth billions globally I mean billions I mean my biggest bugbear with the pet industry I, I'm quite outspoken about this is kibble and processed foods which and with my nutrition hat on you know I'll be honest my view is that is not the right food to feed a dog and and if we are what we eat then eating you know a load of sugar you know which is not species appropriate for a dog you know will create hyperactivity and behaviors mood swings all the rest of it like we get sugar highs, sugar lows That's not going to be conducive to you know a functional relationship really particularly if you're living on the sixth floor of a high rise with a balcony and no garden
2: yeah you know it's it's really interesting because I feel like um you know, again, we could get lost very much in those weeds about the world and how much it's changed in recent decades and age ourselves in the meantime here, Anna, but, um, you know, it's, it really is a, uh, it's kind of a matter of dogs in a way being a harbinger or a canary in the coal mine for what's happening for humans. Right. So like we can step away from dogs for a second and we can look at the human population in the 21st century, and we can look at the data and the statistics about our own mental health challenges that are on the rise. Right. And the Dysfunction we're having um, uh, in humanity, you know, uh, adapting to this rapidly changing modern world and set of conditions, which bears little to no resemblance to the world a hundred years ago. You know, it really doesn't. I mean, the things that are definitive and um, uh, def- just essential to life in the 21st century in developed nations for most people didn't exist a century ago. And that, and that's powerful, right? So when we really look at that, and we look at all the things around that, and the changes to our lifestyle and our environments and our realities as a result, you know, just that one point that you made about, you know, the, the average walk being 20 minutes, right? So let's just for generosity's sake, multiply that by, you know, five and, and say, okay, well, then the dog's got you know, uh, 100 a hundred minutes a day outside, you know? Okay, well, so that's just a little bit more than an hour and a half out of a 24 hour period. So if we do the math backwards there, we're looking at 22 plus hours a day that dog is spending inside for a species and in most cases a breed that was developed to be outside the vast majority of the time working functionally for these very specific highly developed tasks that humans needed dogs for utilitarian wise Um, Over the course of hundreds and thousands of years that we suddenly don't need anymore because we've got this modern world and we can go to the grocery store instead of go hunt a deer. Right. And Mm -hmm. so all of that means that we have become sedentary, indoors, um, frustrated, isolated socially, and our dogs have come along with us as our companions for that ride. The, the challenge is, is that we manufactured dogs through artificial selection to be all of these behavioral specialists. And because of our romanticism about the breeds, we've preserved those keys for those locks that we don't have anymore. We could start selecting for adaptability to modern conditions in dogs. We have that option but that's not a conversation that we have been culturally comfortable introducing yet but it's one that really needs to be had because we're we're really making life much more difficult to them as we push these square pegs into round holes so repeatedly
1: yeah, and I think, you know, perhaps people not taking on the right dogs for their lifestyle. Well, right. you know, some people are more active than others, sure. So, you know, to take on a border collie, if you live up north in England where there's lots of hills and you're going hiking and so on, then brilliant. But, you know, I see I see lots of breeds in London that I think, oh, you know... Um, are they really the right dog to have in, in the city? You know, mm-hmm. um, for some owners, sure, that, that go the extra mile. But I just feel in my heart that that's not happening. I mean, for example, today I was on the radio, on BBC Radio 2, talking about a story that hit yesterday, which is that dog bites for postal workers, you um, guys and girls delivering our mail, has gone up again. And, you know, there was this case of one postal worker that was shoving an envelope through the letterbox and um, his hand was so badly mauled it still isn't working right you know Mm -hmm. and that's really not good and I said you know for every dog that does this you know it's bad for the dog it's obviously extremely bad for the postal worker but it's bad for all dogs you know that's the problem and then you know fear starts to create and it's so unfair so we have to adapt our dog's natural behaviors and take those into consideration and understand why your dog might be a bit annoyed that letters are flying through this hole in the front door but channel it into something more appropriate while still satisfying your
2: dog's needs and, and building a bond with teamwork. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And, you know, there are, this is why I love the legs model. So, you know, the legs model, again, being something that's meant to just be like, it's the comprehensive set of variables that go into any animal's behavior. So they have the learning, they have the external conditions of the environment. They've got the genetics that they bring to the table from birth. And then they have the self, which is those internal conditions of age, sex, nutrition, disease, um, reproductive status, et cetera. Right. So we have all these little parts that are overlapping and interacting. Well, so if we look at dogs through legs as a lens, right, that comprehensive uh, perspective of a phenotype that would apply to every other species as opposed to putting them in their own little special category as pets where none of the rules of nature apply to them, then we can get a little bit more pragmatic and appreciate what some of those variables might be so that we can set up those situations like what you described more successfully. So let's say, for instance, I don't know the particular case you're talking about, I'm not the UK, but like it, let's say there was um, that dog with the letterbox was a um, within a breed group that was artificially deliberately selected for increased territorial and protective behaviors. Then we might choose to not leave that dog with access to the letterbox in our absence or in our presence for that matter, right? We might decide to just manage our environment, set things up a little bit differently, you know, have a little gate, whatever, um, that we're using in the house just so that the dog you know, isn't going to be in that position where their instincts, frankly, are going to uh, potentially override um, any kind of training or socializing or conditioning that we've been doing, um, it's possible because instincts have generations of reinforcement history potentially attached to them, um, that even if we are doing all the right things with training and socializing, et cetera, that we still could have an issue. Um, and yet, if we just adjust the environment enough, if nothing else, to avoid the rehearsal of that behavior. Behavior. It gives us an opportunity, like you said, to redefine the context, represent it to the dog through something um, my good friend, colleague, Laura Donaldson calls cognitive reappraisal, um, which is a, a really interesting phenomenon in the field of psychology for humans. So give the dog the opportunity to cognitively reappraise that condition and go, oh, OK, well, that's not actually a threat. I didn't know that. Right. I was reflexively defaulting to instinct. But now that I can be away from the position that's just putting me in that um, uh, you know, corners, if you will, of, of just reflexively reacting. I can, I can step back. I can have a different perspective on that context and that um, stimulus, so that I can have a different uh, response. And you, as my person, can help me figure that out by understanding what's happening for me.
1: Yeah, exactly. Exactly.
2: And then, you know, there's no stress, especially for the postal worker. (laughs) Right. Right. I know. Um, And and I I didn't realize that the population had risen that much in the UK in the last few years. It makes me really curious about whether the same thing is happening here. Um, I I think that's why I kind of go back to some criticism of the pet industry is I think, we've put a lot of people, well, more people have dogs now than ever before. Right. I think a lot of people before knew, I don't have time for a dog. Right. I don't have the lifestyle, whatever. And now that there's all these kind of supportive services, the idea is anyone can now have a dog. You just need a dog walker and daycare and a dog trainer and, you know, all this stuff, but it's like, it, it may still be a not optimal idea for a whole lot of different people in their lifestyles for a number of reasons
1: well you know I always say the point of getting a dog is that you spend time with your dog and you get to know your dog and it's it's not rocket science some people do need help with their dog training but to be honest it's quite dog trainers are quite a new phenomenon we survived for thousands of years without any you oh know.
2: I know <laughs> <laughs> right I know and that's what's it's so interesting to me I always bring up that point in my courses because we've all grew up in a world um you know especially the younger generation even younger than myself where dog trainers were just kind of par for the course as part of having a dog but for 10 to 40,000 years dogs and humans coexisted quite successfully and we didn't have dog trainers until the last few decades really I mean at least as far as a popular commonality.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. I think the, the the first one that was quite, you know, famous in the UK was uh, Barbara Woodhouse, who I'm sure yeah. you've heard of. Yeah, but that wasn't that long ago. I mean, I remember watching her on TV, so I'm not that old, as I keep saying.
2: Right, right. Well, TV hasn't been around really that long either, you know, if we really look at it. And so um, the, the whole idea of professional dog training, especially professional dog training for your average pet dog is something completely new and it's not that we're just fabricating the need for it that's the other interesting factor you know if you really think about it If dogs were having, quote, behavior problems historically the way that we're having behavior problems in the 21st century, I think there would have arisen a higher demand for it long ago. But I think it's because our lifestyle has changed so much. Um, With the increased, again, time spent indoors, um, increased confinement, loss of autonomy, uh, reduction to actually using dogs agriculturally or for the things for which they were bred, which would have provided more relief, et cetera. You know, but in in the field of applied ethology, we look at behavior problems as actually evidence of compromised welfare. And so that's what's kind of interesting. If we look at dog training and the demand for dog training and the increase of behavior problems in our pet dog population, it actually points to something deeper and, frankly, more concerning.
1: Yeah, it's it's a worry, you know, there's this whole aspect now. A book I love is called The Forever Dog, where Dr. Karen Becker, you know, investigates the whole aspect of us humans being emotional contagions to our dogs.
2: Yes. Oh, I know. And isn't that just something that's like a powerful thing for us to have to chew on and consider, but, you know, it's true. And we actually have a great deal of research about that at this point, about dogs synchronizing their nervous systems to our own particular working dogs, like border collies. And, you know, the implications of that are pretty profound. Um, you know, we're starting to have this kind of um, interspecies influence on each other's mental health crises. Um, and and we, we tend to think, well, the dogs will improve our mental health, right? Like you said, they're good for our stress. Well, what about their stress? You know, and what are we asking them to carry?
1: Well, you know, it does. It's one of my bugbears that I feel that a lot of pet parents, you know, just want the dog to be a comfort blanket when they get home from work.
2: Right. And and that's it. That's all they want the dog, you know, to need or be or not necessarily. I mean, that's obviously a gross generalization on my. It part. It is. Yes. Okay. But, um, you know, I, I think that's true for some people, though, is that it, it, we've we've kind of marketed the idea of the stuffed puppy syndrome, as my friend Justine Shermans calls it, where it's like you know, that's, that's all they want is to love you and to be there for you and to make you feel better. And, you know, um, when actually just like any person or any other animal or species, they have their own needs, you know, Uh, and, and we have to recognize that a lot of those needs, a lot of the things um, they're about their natural design were not actually designed to be pet centric, you know, yes, there are breeds of dogs that have been forever, designed to be pets. Take the Cavalier King Charles Spaniel as an example. Um, well, and even previously at one point they were used for you know actual gun dog work, but it's been some time for most lions. Um, but for most breeds of dogs, there's a lot more going on in the baking of that cookie than um, just to be a pet. And, and we've been marketing the idea that all dogs, are by definition pets when that's actually not true if we look at you know what the uh, artificial selection pressures have been on them historically as well as the natural ones
1: Yes and that kind of just you know I think reinforces to understand the dog that you're bringing into your life and because what we're seeing at the moment in the here is you know rather than taking you know dogs to a good rescue to find their forever home with responsible you know professionals and all the rest of it people are just reselling them on the internet Kim. Oh really? Yeah 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 and you know dog and cat you know websites. Mm, mm. Oh wow. Um, um, Which is really really sad. Um, A wealth fair expert um actually ira moss of all dogs matter the brilliant you know rehoming um charity in london so she followed one bulldog uh four times on the oh. internet yeah oh. so it's really yeah it's <laughs> it's um it's really depressing but this is why conversations like this i think though are, are so important but it's interesting what you were saying about you know maybe there won't be Dobermans around anymore. I'm training one at the moment. That's why she's in my mind. I absolutely love mm-hmm. her. She's been extremely well-bred. So, you know, she was weaned to raw, for example, which for me, I feel that's very important. Her pet parents doing everything. They live really close to one of the massive royal parks in London, which we're blessed mm-hmm. with. And it's all going really, really well. But, you know, she's wonderful, this dog. I mean, she's like a she's like a foal. Her legs are so <laughs> long, you know. and um, and But she will be a very strong strong strong, powerful dog. She's like five months at the moment, but she's going to at least uh, double, maybe triple in size. So it's a big responsibility in the middle of London.
2: Yeah. And, you know, that compatibility factor, right? Like we all know about it in relationships. I talk a lot about it from this perspective in my book, Meet Your Dog, um, because the the kind of way that we would approach a relationship is most of us anyway, realize we could fall in love with a person that's not going to be a good partner for us, right? For practical reasons. It doesn't mean we don't love them. It doesn't mean we have don't have a strong connection or affinity, but um, it might just not be a good compatible match. If I say I'm a super homebody, which I am, and I'm a complete hermit who just loves to stay home all the time. And I fall in love with a, you know, man with wanderlust who loves to travel the world all the time. Then one of us might be asked ourselves to make uh, or the other person to make compromises that just aren't going to be good for us in the long run, because it's just not who we are. And so, you know, you take something like this is one of the things that's going on here in the US a lot, the increasing popularity of livestock guardian dogs um, breeds as pets, um, that these dogs were literally developed to live outdoors, you know? And it doesn't mean they should never come indoors. I have a Pyrenees mix myself and she's laying at my side as we speak here. But she also has a three acre fenced area that she has autonomous access to whenever she wants. And for her, that's a big part of her, her optimal welfare because, you know, having a dog that is, you know, literally developed to spend the majority of their time outside with a flock, making their own decisions, being protective of their territory and resources um, and social members uh, against other predators, and then taking that dog in into the suburbs in a um, you know small fenced yard uh, or an apartment building where there's lots of other quote predators meaning other pet dogs around um, coming onto or close to their property or approaching their social members in their you know uh, territorial vicinity um, is going to create a lot of friction for that dog and their legs and therefore that family
1: as well. So it is. It is all about understanding the breed. I mean, also you know, I bet your Pyrenean's got a really thick coat. <laughs> Oh, yes. Um, you know, designed to be
2: up a mountain or is it a Pyrenean Nufi cross? Yeah, she is. Exactly. And she's she's half and half. And we live in the mountains here. And so, you know, um, she doesn't love this time of year. She spends more time inside and um, that's perfectly fine. Her favorite season is is a blizzard. <laughs> yeah, her favorite yeah. weather is laying in the yard in the middle of, you know, uh, 10 degree <laughs> weather in a snowstorm. Um, yeah. But it, it would be inhumane, in my opinion, for me to move her to Florida. Um, I, you know, I've had clients who've taken huskies when they've moved to Florida, and you know, didn't mean any harm by it. But within, you know, six months, the dog's skin is rotting um, because of the humidity and the, you know, the moisture and the uh, temperatures. Um, in Florida and, you know, then they end up spending all their time inside, which is not great for a Husky either. And, you know, it's not that there's any really clear answers to this stuff. And I want to say that because I think it's really easy to get sad and get, feel a sense of loss and like, oh no, this is so bad. And Kim's saying, oh no, we're doing these horrible things and dogs are suffering, even though we love them. And I'm not saying that there should be any judgment we're putting on ourselves or each other individually, or as a society, I'm just saying, I think it's time for us to start looking in places we haven't looked, asking questions we haven't asked being brave enough to have certain conversations to think in terms of the long game for our relationship with dogs and their life with us in the 21st century, to see what is going to have the most lasting possible benefit and effect for them um, to address all of the mounting issues we're having.
1: Yeah, and, and also how our dogs can really help better us. You know, I think we're going down a tunnel that perhaps isn't brilliant for, you know, mankind, you know, isolation, doing everything through the computer, all this social media pressure, you know, and it's something, Um, you know, something I wanted quickly to touch on because I think you're a fan of this I haven't actually tried this yet but I'm very keen to is the buttons and you know trying to build a conversation with your dog without being able to use basic language, because mm-hmm. dogs, they can't understand the word no, really. They're understanding facial, you know, communication, body, posture, because they, they speak in dog. But I'd love to know if it really is possible, you know, to build a conversation and really understand what your dog is feeling to get the dog to express to you. You know, I'm not really feeling like my walk today because, you know, my left leg's a bit sore because I was a bit mad yesterday in the park. I overdid it, you know. So I just want to say, you know, and rather than everyone going right we've got to get to the park now
2: Do you get what i mean yeah yeah absolutely and you know it's interesting because we have um bunny the uh sheepadoodle who's so famous on uh the social media for the buttons is actually um her mom alexis divine is one of our students in the group and so um it's been really fun having her in in our full legs course um that we have for professionals uh and you know i've learned a lot about the process from her i haven't tried it myself because i think my husband will leave me because then i'll be you know Even more completely um, obsessed with what my dogs are doing and why they're doing it and whether they're pushing a button and asking me something and you know the poor man would just be over the over his (laughs) limit there and and (laughs) but um, you know um, however one of the things that we talk about a lot in the course um, is is one of my hacks called that I call the Mister Rogers hack which I've learned from our many UK students doesn't translate to the UK because Mister Rogers was this American staple but you know was kind of an icon in the children's television shows. in my childhood. Um, And he was just very good at like connecting with children and talking with them in a purposeful, uh, simple way, kind of narrating life and experiences as it unfolds and giving room for the child to uh, respond based on how they're feeling, of course, in that case, verbally from the child. But the Mr. Rogers hack for our students um, is something that has arisen out of my years of practice working um, as a trainer and consultant. uh, After I uh, learned some years ago that dog's receptive language ability was on par with a toddler, right? Like a two year old. Mm. Um, and it, and it really blew my mind. And of course at the time I had an Australian shepherd who might as well have spoken fluent English. Um, and, um, I started giving myself increasing permission to not be embarrassed and to talk to my dog uh, as well as um, encouraging my clients to do so. And the results were absolutely mind blowing to me because, you know, we feel really dumb being like talking to our dogs. And it's interesting because we all accept that a dog can learn. Are you hungry? Do you want to go outside? Do you want to go for a walk? Where's your ball? Where's your daddy? Sit down, stay calm, whatever. Right. And for some reason, our culture's kind of stopped there. Right. Like almost like, well, sure, dogs can recognize the meaning of these other words which is pretty much just sounds as symbols they don't conceptualize language in the same way we do with this inner narrative of chatting and what have you because they that's not how their their brains are organized but um at the same time They are so species specific, focused on our behavior, communication, body language, facial expression, tone, et cetera, as well as then the various sounds that we're communicating. And what I found is that in the same way that children are put at ease by us narrating life as it's unfolding, so we would become very deliberate about things like, okay, we're gonna go get in the car and we need your shoes. Okay, let's put on your shoes. We're gonna go get in the car. And then we're going to go to the park. And then when we get to the car, we say, okay, we're in the car, we have to put on your seatbelt, you know, whatever. Those are things that are obviously kid specific. But a lot of the events that are unfolding for life and uh, for dogs and life in the 21st century, they're sitting here with all these question marks over their head about what is going on? What does this mean? Someone's at the front door knocking with a plate of stuff. I don't know who they are, why they're here. So for instance, we could pick certain keywords and phrases that become meaningful symbols for dogs. Like, oh, that's just a neighbor, right? Um, That's just a friend. Um, and our friend is coming over and if we consistently when someone who is friend who you know social uh counterpart of ours comes over to the house if we consistently say a friend is here our friend is coming over and that always has predictive value of safety and comfort and lack of conflict for the dog then very much our talking to our dogs starts to have this transformative effect and we're just now starting to give ourselves permission to be hokey enough so to speak to talk to our dogs in public without total humiliation um, <laughs> watching my students implement it and the success they're getting is just so fun
1: that's so interesting I love that because you know I, I even make up little songs you know yeah. um, <laughs> but <laughs> people are going to think we're totally nuts but no I mean, but um, you know I, I make up little songs you know little little words so one of my things with prudence because i my bull terrier is we're walking forwards together minding our own you know when we're walking yeah. along and it's like our little mantra you know so um, it, it is important I mean I think we haven't really we're trying to understand dogs so much with so much science. And I just feel we're going around in circles. I think for me, the answer is so much more obvious, really. Yes. Uh, um, yes. I think we try to overcomplicate it, really. Um, yeah. It's such a natural connection that has transformed you know us I mean we wouldn't be even sitting in these high-rise apartments if it hadn't been for the dog driving our livestock to market back in the medieval ages to capitalist society you know and all of that so we owe so much to the dog right oh
2: absolutely there's anthropologists that think that our we might owe our success as a species to the dogs because you know our ability even to communicate linguistically like we were just talking about and spoken word they think might in part be dependent on the fact that we were able to exploit dogs over Factory capabilities um, for the benefit of tracking and hunting such that our own morphology was able to shift to not require the same olfactory capabilities and so it could kind of like repurpose some of those um, features and restructure our own genetics um, so that we could, you know, have the ability to have the spoken word. Now, is that just kind of accepted, you know, uh, widely held belief? No, but I, there are a variety of theories um, about why Dogs have been so instrumental to our own survival. I mean, would we have all been, you know, killed off during the various plagues historically had it not been for our lovely terriers, who we now criticize as quote pet aggressive, or you know, um, uh, we we are complaining about those same behaviors that we painstakingly selected them for historically. That we're literally saving our lives, and you know, it, it, we do have that kind of disconnect with them. And I think, like you said too, we have we love to overcomplicate things, and especially get fun, fancy new data asking what sometimes to me are silly questions, right? Like, Mm. can the dog tell the difference between the different tones of voice of a person? well, of course they can. We have thousands and millions of anecdotal examples of that, but yet we feel the need to study that, you know? Um, And I'm not, I'm not trying to criticize a particular study. I'm just saying that like, sometimes when we're asking the wrong questions, we're going to get the wrong answers. And I think there's a lot to the volume of anecdotal evidence that we have. Um, And we basically have this massive experiment in all of our living rooms who have dogs, right? Where we can, we can ask questions and we can try things and find out things for our and our own dogs um, and what those potentials are when we give ourselves permission to wonder and to look. Yeah, and put the energy in into our relationships
1: with dogs because, like any relationship, it, it needs work and commitment and um, patience and all of these things that I think help us be better people. You know, but um, Kim, tell us quickly where everyone can find out about your course because I'm sure people in the UK will. Well, I know I'm dying to do this course, and I'm sure lots of other people would love to do it too. And we'll put the links in the show notes, but just explain and give us, you know, the heads on. It.
2: Yes, no, absolutely. Um, so if, if folks want to go to familydogmediation.com, um, that is the new website for the Family Dog Mediation Education Center, and both the full pro course as well as the new public uh, course for families are available on there. So we've got the full pro course, that's about 20 to 30 hours, depending on how quickly you move through the materials. Um, and that is the comprehensive course that frankly, anyone working with dogs professionally or trying to make a career out of their dog passion should take um, to get all of the details. Um, but then that massive course, was distilled into a one hour, basically documentary course for the public to make that same information accessible for every dog family, um, and also as a way for professionals to kind of have a complement to their services. So let's say you take the full course, you understand all these things, now you're overwhelmed on how to translate it all to your clients. Um, we have this program where uh, our students can sell the course to their clients at 90% off um, or for free so that basically then those, those people will have that information and the professional doesn't have to waste time trying to kind of rehash all of that. So um, it's a conversation starter to say the least. We are are really working to create a massive paradigm shift in the dog world um, by talking about the reality of really what's happening for them these days it's absolutely brilliant that you're doing this Kim
1: and I think dogs globally will be thanking you so I can't wait I must get organized on it as well Kim so thank you on that front by the way and I'd love to chat again so I know we're running out of time a bit now so um look thank you so much for joining me on a dog's life Kim
2: oh thank you again Anna for having me it's my pleasure
1: That's our show, Mr. Binks. What did you think? Yes, I know, I know. I am going to enrol on the course. And what's that? Yes, you're right. It is time for Woof of the Week. It's so important to remember that a dog is a dog and to remember why they do what they do. Well, I hope you all enjoyed it. If you did, go on, rate and review the show wherever you tune into your podcasts. Thanks again, of course, to the amazing Kim Brophy. And all the links to Kim and to her course are in the show notes. Thanks, of course, to Mike Hansen, my producer. And find out more about him at PodPeople UK. And I'm at Anna Web What's that, Mr. Binks? Oh yes, we will be back in your feed next Sunday. So why don't you subscribe now? It's free. That way, you'll never miss another show. Bye for now.